Good morning. My name is George Bathgate. Um, welcome back to The Accidental Curator. Um, this is episode 10, as it turns out, and I'm coming to you from Kitsilano, Vancouver, just my, my home office today. Um, although I will be going over to Main Island tomorrow, but I'm running the cafe, so I won't have time to do any recording over there. Uh, yeah, it's uh, March the 16th, and I gather the last few times I've created podcasts, I kind of do a little preamble about what's happening uh, in my world or the world in general. And I know we've been so preoccupied with the pandemic that that's really been the focus for quite some time now. I started this podcast during the pandemic, largely because my uh, gallery cafe was closed. And I've continued it, and I intend to continue it, but uh, new demands are entering my life, uh, including reopening the cafe um, and gearing up for spring, summer. Um, however, that being said, uh, now the pandemic seems to be winding down and we are faced with this new uh, new crisis, just this new, um, the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. It's just all very disconcerting, uh, worrisome, depressing, all those things. And uh, we all need to keep our spirits high and uh, give out love and hope to the Ukrainian people. Um, anyway, uh, I did also want to reiterate that when I started The Accidental Curator, the subtext for the podcast was an island, a gallery cafe, recovery and creativity. And yeah, that is the subtext of this show. And a lot of what has brought me to this point of making this podcast is having the the ability uh, to create this little gallery cafe on a sweet little island off the coast of Vancouver. And when it closed up, I was faced with uh, needing a project. I seem to be like a uh, like a border collie that needs to focus on something. And this was my idea to create this podcast. And part of the subtext of that is the Gallery Cafe, uh, Recovery and Creativity. And part of what has enabled me to do any of these projects is the fact that I'm approaching 10 years of sobriety in um, April. So I have to give a, you know, a, a hats off, uh, blessings to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous for you know, making all of this possible. I entered the program 10 years ago and it's just been great and it's kept me sober uh, throughout this entire period and has released my creativity. So hence the recovery and creativity uh, subtext of the podcast. So a lot of what I've been doing is either creating new stories for the podcast or reading stories that I've written over the past uh, three, four, five years. Um, because I don't know if you need more news stories. The news is all kind of sad, bleak, and depressing, as I was saying. So I think uh, reading a little story to you is maybe my answer to um, relieving some of the burdens of the world. And if you find these stories funny, that's great. Uh, most of them have a little bit of a humorous uh, bent to them. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, begin my next story, which is called Sugar Time. That was Sugar Time 
a song written by Charlie Phillips and Otis Eccles in 1957 and popularized by the McGuire sisters in 1958. That's the version you just heard. Kitty Wells in 1959, and yes, even Johnny Cash in 1961. When we gain sobriety, one of our primary tasks is to try and understand where our excessive habits came from. How did I get here? Sang David Byrne of the Talking Heads. The trail of self-discovery was, in my case at least, not sprinkled with breadcrumbs, but sugar cubes and candy canes, leading all the way back to my early childhood. It was the mid to late 1950s. I wasn't yet toilet trained, and already I lived for sugar. The world and everything that found its way into my tiny mouth seemed sprinkled, dusted, coated, dipped, rolled in, or spread with completely fabricated sugar. It was everywhere. It sweetened every social event. It was baked into the major holidays. It kidnapped Halloween. The birthday parties with their inch-thick icing cakes the visits to family with their gauntlet of well-meaning candy-proffering grannies and aunties, and the ubiquitous bowls of assorted bonbons and mints presented as offerings of adoration to we neighborhood children by our fawning elders. There was always a rush to be the first to give a child candy. The giver knew intuitively that it bestowed an immediate bond. Sugar was love. Sugar in the morning. By the time I started eating solid foods, a typical day would start with a good sugar-saturated breakfast cereal. Sugar Pops, Captain Crunch, Cocoa Puffs, Frosted Flakes, Apple Jacks, Fruit Loops, Lucky Charms, Apple Cinnamon Cheerios, and for those healthier cereals, Special K, Rice Krispies, Cheerios, there was always the ever-present bowl of sugar in the middle of the kitchen table to help oneself, unsupervised, to as much sugar as one could tolerate. And yes, my friends, young Georgie had a very high tolerance. And who am I trying to kid? I put sugar on all of my cereals, whether they came pre-sugared or not. It's sugar time, folks. The alternative to cereal was toast, slathered in jam, honey, and peanut butter, with weekend treats of pancakes and waffles swimming in syrup, or batches of my Swedish grandma's pleta, which are small, thin pancakes sprinkled with spoonfuls of sugar, butter, and cinnamon. I had a particular love affair with the sugar bowl and would often find myself, at age three or four, kneeling on a kitchen chair at the table, leaning over and methodically channeling spoonful after spoonful of sugar into my mouth while my mother was downstairs doing laundry. Bliss. By the age of five or six, my teeth started to resemble those of Shane McGowan from the Pogues. Sugar in the evening. If we were sick, sugar was there to help the medicine go down. I remember my mother crushing whatever pill may have been prescribed or bought over the counter and mixing it with jam or honey to make it more palatable for my little pill-averse taste buds. If we ever had a cold, flu, or fever, Dad was there with a hot toddy, which is basically hot whiskey, honey, or sugar, and maybe a little lemon. That's a Scottish thing. Before we went to bed, and we would find ourselves hovering somewhere between a sugar coma and boozy delirium. One cute story that my mother, bless her, used to tell from my early childhood 
was of little Georgie, perhaps age two, going into the bathroom, climbing on top of the toilet to reach the medicine cabinet above the sink to retrieve the Benelin cough syrup, which was a rather potent medicine laced with codeine, an opioid linked to addiction, and sugary syrup, and downing the entire bottle. Mum found the empty bottle and me, staggering around the house. She gave me small amounts of coffee and forced me to keep walking so I wouldn't pass out. Sugar at supper time. I received a weekly allowance of 10 cents and permission to walk the two or three blocks to my favorite store in our neighborhood, and likely the only one I frequented at the age of five, called Kitty Corner, a candy store where I would load up on penny candy. Ten cents, at two or three pieces per penny, could fill a small brown paper bag and provide an afternoon of addictive, cavity-expanding distraction. Green, sugar-coated jelly mint leaves, pinkish sugar strawberries, yellow bananas, little black licorice babies, candy necklaces, red shoestring licorice, bazooka, double bubblegum. No suckers or jelly beans, thanks. They're a little too pedestrian. Lickum aid, candy lipstick, candy bacon, and on and on. If you build it, they will come. Kitty cocaine, as my friend JB calls it. And as it turns out, he's right. When I quit drinking in 2012, thank you very much, AA, my desire to eat sweet things like ice cream, chocolates, and sugary baked goods spiked, as if I was replacing my adult drinking obsession with my more primary childhood sugar craving. I wasn't eliminating addiction, I was only transferring it, reverting to the mean, as it were. Shortly after receiving my one-year sobriety cake in 2013, also slathered with sugary irony, I came across this article in the National Geographic titled Sugar Love, which said, When we eat sugar, the brain releases dopamine and serotonin, two mood-boosting hormones that stimulate the area of the brain associated with reward. In a process similar to drug addiction, we get sugar cravings. However, our sugar rush releases insulin that creates a sugar crash, triggering more cravings and a vicious sugar cycle. Bingo. If not a smoking gun, then at least a prime suspect. Although I still indulge in the sweet stuff and may indeed be powerless over a well-crafted cookie or piece of chocolate, my life is not unmanageable. Unless you take away my coffee, don't even think about it. Okay, listeners, that's the end of episode 10, a little story I wrote a while ago called Sugar Time. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, my name again is George Bathgate, and this is The Accidental Curator. I know I'm not the only one out there who has a little uh, predilection for sweet goods. Um, seems to be a fairly universal thing for we humans. We are attracted to and addicted to sugary things. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for coming out today. I'm starting to work on episode 11 soon, uh, but I don't have any fixed schedule nowadays because as I mentioned earlier, I am starting up my 
uh, gallery cafe slowly but surely as I head into the busy summer months. If you're interested in future episodes, you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you'd like to leave a comment, that would be great. Or share this link with someone you think may be interested. The Accidental Curator uh, will be coming back to you, uh, hopefully in the not too distant future, with episode 11. Please stay tuned.